Welcome to this AMR audio interview, sponsored by the Transactions of the ASME, Applied Mechanics Reviews, and the Applied Mechanics Division within ASME. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich, and also the editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Applied Mechanics Reviews is an international review journal that serves as a premier venue for dissemination of material across all sub-disciplines of applied mechanics and engineering science, including fluid and solid mechanics, heat transfer, dynamics and vibration, and applications. This series of AMR audio interviews features personal reflections of my guests on matters pertaining to all aspects of applied mechanics research, including past, current, and predicted research trends, a professional career in science and academia, scientific dissemination and peer review, public engagement and impact, and curricular innovation and developments. We hope that you find the AMR interviews a valuable complement to the perhaps less personal and more technically focused material available through the AMR journal, as well as other technical journals in the area of applied mechanics. I'm excited to present to you today's guest, Professor Stuart Antman of the Department of Mathematics at the University of Maryland in College Park, Maryland. Professor Antman was born in 1939 in Brooklyn, New York, and moved with his family to Dayton, Ohio at the age of five. In 1955, he returned to the New York area for the second half of his high school years. Professor Antman received his Bachelor of Science degree in 1961 from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and his Master of Science and PhD degrees from the University of Minnesota in 1963 and 1965, respectively. Following two years as a visiting member of the Courant Institute in New York, he joined the New York University faculty as an assistant professor in 1967. In 69, he was promoted to associate professor, a position that he held for three years before transferring to a full professor position at the University of Maryland in 1972. Professor Antman's research centers on dynamic and steady-state nonlinear problems for deformable bodies, modeled as rods, shells, or fully three-dimensional solids. He is a contributor of methods of nonlinear analysis and computation for problems in solid mechanics, including the analysis of geometrically exact theories of deformation for nonlinear problems of elasticity and viscoelasticity. His first publications, on the dynamic stability of circular and hyperelastic rods, were co-authored with William Warner and based on his PhD research. They appeared in 1965 in the Journal of the Society for Industrial and Applied Mathematics, as well as Archive for Rational Mechanics and Analysis. More recently, he contributed to a special issue in honor of Constantin Dafermos in the Quarterly of Applied Mechanics. Co-authored with Suleiman Ulusoy, a postdoctoral fellow in the Center for Scientific Computation and Mathematical Modeling at Maryland, the paper treats the subject of asymptotics of heavily burdened viscoelastic rods. In addition to an extensive record of journal publication, Professor Antman is also the author of Nonlinear Problems of Elasticity, published originally in 1995 and updated in a second edition in 2005. He also served as editor of the Nonlinear Field Theories of Mechanics by Truesdale and Null. Professor Antman is a recipient of several distinguished awards, including a John S. Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship, the Mathematics and Computer Science Award from the Washington Academy of Sciences in 2010, and the prestigious Theodore von Karman Prize of the Society for Industrial and Applied Mathematics in 1999, awarded for a notable application of mathematics to mechanics made during the five to ten years preceding the award. In addition to his extensive service as organizer of major international conferences, Professor Antman has served on the editorial boards of the Archive for Rational Mechanics and Analysis, including as editor-in-chief between 1989 and 1999, the Journal of Elasticity, and the Quarterly of Applied Mathematics. Since 2001, he serves as co-editor-in-chief of several series of Springer book publications in applied mathematics. Internally at the University of Maryland, he has also provided active support and service to the Institute for Physical Science and Technology, an interdisciplinary research and education center. 
Finally, one notes Professor Antman's extensive record of holding visiting positions at institutions of higher learning and research internationally, including the University of Bonn, the University of Leipzig, the City University of Hong Kong, Oxford University, two branches of the University of Paris, Harriet Watt University of Edinburgh, Università di Roma La Sapienza, the University of Newcastle upon Tyne, and the Università Autonoma de México, to name only a few. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in College Park, Maryland, on November 5th, 2012. Professor Antman, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to this AMR audio interview. Going back to some of your early publications, I noted that your first paper that appeared in the Archive for Rational Mechanics and Analysis was communicated by Clifford Truesdell. What interactions did you have with him then, and what interactions have you had since or you know, before he passed? I had only met him at a conference in Italy and uh, told him about my thesis, and he strongly encouraged me to polish it up and submit it to him. After I had done so, he uh, informed me uh, two or three weeks later that it was accepted for publication. He pretty much controlled that uh, journal for quite a number of years. Did he found it? Uh, he, he had founded it. Yeah. Uh, it was a continuation of a version that was originally founded at uh, Indiana University. Mm -hmm. But uh, when he moved, the journal effectively moved. And then, uh, as I also noted, uh, more recently then, you served as the editor of, of a volume, I suppose, of, of his work uh, together with yeah, Noel. Yeah, he, he had written this uh, prestigious article mm -hmm. with Walter Noel in mm -hmm. the Handbuch der Physik, and he had, before his death, made some notes on errors that had to be corrected and uh, new comments that had to be done. When and did he pass? He died about 10 years ago. Yeah. And uh, as a consequence, I was invited to introduce his corrections in a third edition and then write an, an introduction discussing uh, the major changes that had occurred since the original volume was produced. But he had already found the, made the corrections but not published them. He had made the corrections. I went through to see if I found them correct. Yeah, okay. <laughs> And they were, or you uh, found And some? everything that was correct, yeah. I, uh, I wrote up and yeah. uh, introduced. Okay. And had you interacted with him uh, prior to that? Yes, yeah. I had seen him constantly. When I uh, took over the editorship of the Archive for right. Rational Mechanics Analysis, I had long negotiations with him. Were you the second editor-in-chief after him, then? Uh, he had uh, taken as a co-editor-in-chief James Sarin from the University of uh, Minnesota. But uh, when he wanted to retire, um, he stuck me with the job. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it was one I could not refuse. I have never met Trisdale, but uh, as I've heard, there's a particular sort of approach to doing mechanics and doing mathematics and a very systematic axiomatic sometimes perhaps approach. Well, basically, I, th I would like to uh, perhaps contrast it with uh, parts of my education. As an undergraduate, I was strongly exposed to, I would say, the Timoshenko approach to mechanics, which I found delightful. I loved the treatment of problems. But at the same time, I was always worried, what happens if you didn't make these simplifying assumptions? Mm -hmm. What happens if mm -hmm. you didn't assume that everything in sight was small? In those cases, I started becoming aware, along with many people in my generation, that Truesdale was advocating exact formulations mm -hmm. in which he used the exact geometry and yeah. made precise assumptions. And this, too, I found uh, very fascinating. And at that stage, there was uh, likewise a lot of success in treating specific problems of that sort. Uh, in particular, Rivlin in the late 1940s showed that you could solve some problems exactly for arbitrary material behavior. And this helped uh, promote this effort on uh, nonlinear continuum mechanics. Mm -hmm. So the, the Timoshenko approach would, would make assumptions about the ge geometry of the deformation and 
which components and which components of the of the stress or the, the strain that could be ignored exactly and, and reduce down the number of degrees of freedom by imposing constraints that um, might be artificial and might not be satisfied by natural material yes one basically is based upon the fundamental principle that the sine of theta equals theta right yeah. <laughs> but there was that wonderful aspect of Timoshenko's work in solving specific problems yeah. and getting uh, specific answers yeah in the 1960s, there was a great deal of excitement about uh, bringing uh, partial differential equations, nonlinear methods to bear on specific problems of mechanics. And there were a lot of beautiful elementary problems that could uh, be treated this way. Mm -hmm. And they basically got solved very effectively and very beautifully by the end of the 1960s, early 1970s. Mm -hmm. And then one needed some more industrial-grade mathematics. Mm -hmm. And so that the many people who came together uh, enjoying this uh, generality in the 1960s and 1970s found out that it became increasingly difficult to speak to each other. Uh, the uh, technical mathematical requirements uh, started changing, and then far fewer mathematicians were aware of uh, interesting problems in classical and modern deformable mechanics. Mm -hmm. So what are the, those problems today then that you're addressing and that these techniques can make advances on that maybe the old techniques wouldn't be able to? Well, I would say any sort of uh, nonlinear motions of deformable bodies. Mm -hmm. There you want to account for nonlinear material behavior, nonlinear geometry. Mm -hmm. There are mathematical techniques that can help one analyze these problems, and one wants to make sure that you're analyzing a physically interesting problem. What's the source of those techniques, then? What, what kind of tools would you need? Unfortunately, they uh, require some fairly fancy tools, starting with some nonlinear functional analysis, nonlinear techniques in uh, partial differential equations. In terms of geometrically exact theories and, and taking nonlinear informations into account, that's a matter of kinematics. When it comes to nonlinear constitutive laws, that's much of a, a modeler's choice. Yes, it is. And, uh, and, and so does one approach that based on physical observations or more based on uh, interesting uh, functional forms and, and math mathematical properties? Well, one way that I like to uh, raise the issue is to approach it from an agnostic viewpoint, that there are a great many materials that we really do not know the constitutive equations for, and it's nice to keep our ideas open because yeah. we find that there are thresholds in material response separating qualitatively different behavior. You can have a, a system that looks like it's very stable for one class of materials and becomes severely unstable for another class of materials. And often the thresholds are very much like those for linear response. And so it is essential to find out where those thresholds are because they have uh, significant differences as, as far as application, as far as stability, and as far as safety. And when you say different materials, are you talking a different constitutive behavior or really just a matter of parameter variations within the class of uh, constitutive models? Parameter variations, I would say that they're variations in constitutive functions. In the actual model. Uh -huh. And the issue often is how does uh, the function grow away from the linear response? Mm -hmm. And then once one finds interesting behaviors, is there a quest then to determine whether those exist in actual materials or, or to develop a material that has certain constitutive behaviors? There are all those possibilities. For example, there are cases in which you can uh, say these are the responses of the material that I observe. Can I determine what the material is? Mm -hmm. So that is a sort of reverse experimental technique. Uh, that is also a design technique. 
can you design a material that will have a specific response? Yeah, yeah. For example, the collapse under certain circumstances when you want it to collapse. Mm -hmm. And there have been some uh, attempts to do this using uh, magnetostrictive materials. Is there enough of an interaction between applied mathematicians who work in the area and the sort of theoretical mechanics people and those who might be designing actual materials? There are some interactions. I don't think there are enough. I think that the whole aspect of interactions has uh, diminished somewhat over the years to the detriment of everyone. Uh -huh. and you're involved with a number of, of efforts that do try to bring together mathematicians and mechanicians, but I guess mechanicians in those co contexts may be more theoretically inclined That's usually true, than yes. the designers. In terms of role models as a, as a young person, what brought you into mathematics? What was it that made this? I was originally going to be an artist. It occurred to me in my sophomore, junior year of high school that the correlation between technical skill and success was uh, rather slight. <laughs> and so a high school advisor says, well, with your background, why don't you go into mechanical engineering? And I had only a vague idea what it was, but uh, I went into mechanical But you felt that you had the technical skill, but that it wouldn't guarantee success? Was that the... That's or? right. Okay, yes. I, see. <laughs> I see. All right. I had won a lot of uh, scholarships for uh, for artwork. For painting? Or? Yeah, painting and sculpture. And you, you still keep this up? Or? I keep it up a little bit, mostly on Adobe Illustrator, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I then decided to go on to uh, technical school. But just because of this advice from... Well, uh, I thought that I would... I mean, I did certainly did well in mathematics mm -hmm. and physics. Mm -hmm. and, uh, what were your parents? What were their professions? Uh, my father originally uh, was background a lawyer and oh, then okay. as a businessman. And my mother's education was in uh, romance languages. More to the artistic side then. So were they surprised by your choice? No, they thought it uh, was reasonable. They yeah. uh, didn't think that one could make a living as a portrait painter. Uh -huh. <laughs> Again, I had always uh, been successful in all the science courses yeah. and, of course, also in the language courses in high school. Yeah. So. What made you then decide that you wanted to pursue graduate school? Well, at Rensselaer, they forced the math majors in the second year to take a course in uh, classical rigid body mechanics, yeah. which fascinated me. Yeah. And then I was fascinated by uh, these various courses in mechanics that were part of my minor. It looked like a very interesting way to spend one's life to do these kind of problems. I wasn't sure exactly what it meant to be a, a researcher or what it meant to be a professor, but I, I thought that working in mechanics would be uh, just a lot of fun. But were there people, I mean, among the teachers then that, that you looked up to that gave you the impression of what it might be like? The person who uh, it told invited me to become a math major in my uh, beginning of the freshman year was William Boyce, who is uh, the co-author of Boyce de Prima. Uh, Boyce de Prima, yeah, the yeah, co-author yeah. of this popular book the on the ordinary differential equations, right. and his research work was in mechanics. Uh -huh. And then in my uh, final year, George Handelman, a student of Prager, and had done quite okay. some uh, very nice work on plasticity theory mm -hmm. and, and dynamics and so on, gave uh, some beautiful courses mm -hmm. in uh, elasticity, fluid dynamics, and electromagnetism and their mathematical structure, which I found thoroughly exciting. And so he encouraged me uh, to go on. And Minnesota beckoned because of someone there? or Well, he actually sent me to uh, one of his students, William H. Warner. There. I see. They also had a very strong program in partial differential equations, which I thought would be necessary to support yeah. my interest in mechanics. And at Minnesota, even though you were in the mechanics department, you, you took a lot of courses in mathematics, as you said, because you had already taken a lot of mechanics courses. That's right. And But you did a master's degree? Was that required? Uh, no, I just did it along the way. Yeah. And uh, then I uh, got my doctorate. 
so the two papers I quoted, one was on, on hyperelastic rods and one was circular rods, but they were effectively... One, well, no, one was, one was really on dynamic stability, and then the other was on the theory of hyperelastic rods. There, I, I again, if I look into Timoshenko and some yeah. derivation of the rod equations, I yeah. could ask what happens if you didn't make the, all these simplifying assumptions, that the rod is nearly straight or nearly circular, yeah. uh, there is no shear, yeah, sure. uh, okay. there is no extension... Okay. Uh, and I wanted to sacrifice all those and yes. just see what one would get. I saw what one would get, and yeah. I was lucky enough to be able to analyze some uh -huh. of those problems. Using what tools? Uh, using a variety of tools from uh, global bifurcation theory, the calculus of variations, and uh, nonlinear uh, partial differential equations of hyperbolic and uh, mm -hmm. parabolic type. But some of those uh, solutions uh, took me many, many years. It was, was it the time that was necessary, or was it sort of a matter of maturing into the understanding of the problem I would and say, then seeing the answer? I would say it was maturing into understanding the problem and also development of the mathematical tools at the same time. So there were new tools required. New tools yeah. that were required. One of the first things in, in hindsight was that my background in the calculus of variations I found out that it was immediately useful for doing various problems of elasticity. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a revelation for me, and uh, including these various problems where I had nonlinear material response. So this would amount to formulating the problem in the uh, context of, a fu of functionals rather than transforming it to differential equations? That's right. And, and looking at the existence and, and properties yeah, of solutions exactly. from it, the point of view of the functional. Yeah, showing that it uh, had a minimizer, and that was a nice smooth minimizer, right, and I can right. say what the minimizer looked like. Right. So you, you came to Courant, and you mentioned a basketball seminar with uh, Joe Keller and, yes. and grilling you. Do you remember what he asked you? Uh, he, first of all, asked me what sort of work that I do, yeah. and uh, I started telling him about uh, my doctoral thesis on rods, and... Uh, he didn't have too much time to grill me at that moment, but he uh, brought me into his office for yeah. a two-hour grilling. Uh, I was amazed that uh, there were various delicate parts of my thesis where I had to think very hard on resolving issues, and uh -huh. he immediately uh, detected these delicate questions and asked provocative <laughs> questions about it. Did you anticipate that when you were working on your doctorate work, that you would be able to interact with people of that ilk and communicate where they actually would show interest in your work? I would say I did not I did not anticipate that completely as a doctoral student at that time I had a certain amount of naivete uh, I had interacted uh, with various people at uh, Minnesota in particular Jim Sarin from whom I uh, took courses on the calculus variations and the uh, partial differential equations which proved very very useful for me thereafter and uh, they seemed to be uh, uh, show some interest in my work and interest in me but I was never sure about what was going to happen. What about Warner? Warner suggested originally uh, some problems in the thermodynamics of plasticity, and I started working on that, mm -hmm. but then I s suddenly saw this other aspect of rod theory, which mm -hmm. caught my interest, mm -hmm. and I started writing it up, and uh, he says there's a thesis there. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so I didn't get to plasticity theory until about 10 or 15 years ago. <laughs> but that model of, of giving a student something to warm up on, mm -hmm. but then allowing them to find their own way and, and take the lead, and mm -hmm. become the expert. Yes, and in fact, in Jacques Audemars, The Psychology of Invention in the Mathematical Fields, mm -hmm. he expressed the view that students should choose his own or her own uh, thesis topic. They've been exposed to a lot of uh, information. That's, uh, that's seldom the case nowadays. Uh, even in the mathematical? In, even in the mathematical areas. 
I mean, one of the di difficulties is that the subject is so vast that yeah. you have to have someone uh, knowledgeable in the subject say these are open areas. These uh -huh. are these are research problems that no one has done, and yeah. th that they are tractable and worthy. You're listening to an Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview from November 5th, 2012, with Professor Stuart Antman of the Department of Mathematics at University of Maryland College Park. I'm your host, Harry Dankovich. You also said that back in those days, one didn't necessarily apply for positions, but they sort of came around looking for you. So what were some of those experiences like? Well, first, I mean, I did apply for postdoctoral positions. Yep. Applied to two of them, I got two of them, and I okay. chose to go to uh, NYU. And then I uh, was offered at, at different times assistant professorships, in fact, an associate professorship uh, after my first year out. Huh. But I decided to stay around because I enjoyed the life at the Corn Institute, yeah. and uh, being a postdoctoral fellow was uh, actually very de decadent. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, ultimately, um, when I uh, had a family and we were thinking about not living in New York City, yeah. I had two offers that uh, came to me unsolicited and uh, so accepted one that actually gave my wife the best chance to pursue her career, I see. I see. which was in a, a big city, but not yeah. uh, one where I'd have to do major commuting. Was there a big difference between Maryland and, and NYU at the time? I would say there was a significant difference between most places in NYU. Uh -huh. NYU had a few hundred postdocs yeah. with very, very lively activity, with lots and lots of seminars and uh, lots of uh, interesting discussions going on, lots of interesting courses being offered. And in that context and in the exciting city of New York, one had to accomplish some research as well. <laughs> So that was easier to do here then? Uh, uh, well, the, here I was able to uh, pursue my own yeah. uh, own interests when I came here, but yeah. I didn't come here till I was uh, seven years past my doctorate, so uh -huh. I had a, uh, a bona fide research sure. program. How big was the math department here then? About 70 or 80 people. Oh, that's very large. Today it has diminished. It was high, about 95. It's diminished so that, one, we could uh, afford to have people support our computer system, and also to enlarge the salaries of our faculty, to make them make uh, competitive. very competitive. So we are competing at a very high level, but this is also a fairly expensive place to live. Uh, the salary has to reflect those, those yeah. effects also. At Courant Institute, when you were there early on, you met some quite famous people. I, I think you mentioned shaking hands with, uh, with Courant uh, yes. uh, briefly. I, I myself had an elevator moment at one point <laughs> with uh, Carl Sagan at Cornell, so I sort of know <laughs> the, the feeling of sort of bumping into someone. Uh, are there people from that generation that you feel uh, that had a truly significant influence on the way the science developed and the mathematics developed and maybe aren't quite known outside of the mathematics community but in some sense really have been instrumental? I would say most of the people, let's say, at Courant and most of the people that I, uh, had a major influence on me in Minnesota as a graduate student really got the major recognition that they deserved. Mm -hmm. Some several years thereafter, but mm -hmm. certainly Joe Keller and Peter Lax and mm -hmm. Louis Nuremberg and uh, yeah. Jurgen Moser. I didn't realize how fancy they were when I first met them. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's certainly true that outside of our community, the general public certainly have not heard of a majority of these people. Whereas maybe in the physical sciences, maybe there's something more appealing about the, the, the questions that are being asked. But there, there are names that have permeated the general conscience. 
I think there are some serious communication issues. Uh, certainly, if you look at modern physics, the whole issue of cosmology is a fascinating one, and anyone can appreciate the issue. No one can answer it. I mean, where did we come from, mm -hmm. and how long ago did uh, we come from there, and mm -hmm. what was the Big Bang? And then, of course, there are these uh, weird puzzles, even of modern quantum mechanics, mm -hmm. that are very difficult to, uh, to explain. People see the effects of mechanics. They may see airplane wings moving mm -hmm. 30 or 40 feet, and mm -hmm. uh, they even start worrying about the stability of the aircraft mm -hmm. under those conditions. But these don't seem like as deep a question as uh, those that are treated by the modern physicists. At the time of jet engines, people like von Karman uh, yeah. got a, a lot of uh, exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly when we were doing the... Uh, these aspects of uh, landing people on the moon or sending things to Mars, the uh, role of celestial mechanics and mm -hmm. in particular the role of dynamics mm -hmm. and the roles of controls mm -hmm. could have been uh, explicitly manifested. But there we were given great teams who succeeded and rather than individual personalities sure. who made uh, contributions to these. So I think it's a difficult problem. Our communities at least are beginning to think a little bit about it, mm. and I say more power to them mm. if they can uh, do a better job. So you're in the math department at the University of Maryland, but your background, as you described it to me earlier, started with a very short stint in mechanical engineering and switched over to mathematics. But then at Minnesota, you were in the mechanics department, and, and your thesis work and your advisor were all mechanics mm. But then you switch back to mathematics. And maybe because of the time when the subjects were much closer to one another, it was a very natural I was always able to hang around the border without suffering serious uh, difficulties. Is this still true, that people can do this in either subject? There are a few people who manage to do so. Some mathematics departments are more open-minded on these issues, and certainly various engineering departments have welcomed the people with mm -hmm. mathematical backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I must say, I also have an appointment here in the Institute for Physical Science right. and Technology. And the mere fact of my interdisciplinary interests mm -hmm. in mechanics and mathematics uh, mean that that institute is a comfortable haven for me. Mm -hmm. One of the purposes of this institute is to allow the university to respond rapidly to new trends of interdisciplinary activity. Mm -hmm. And so one area that... Uh, has been getting uh, recent support is in the uh, biological sciences. Mm -hmm. So we have people in uh, mathematics, people in physics, people in engineering have a significant interaction with uh, the biological sciences. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, one of the major applications, I think, of nonlinear solid mechanics is in physiology. Such as? Uh, well, just muscles are wonderful mm -hmm. examples mm -hmm. of deformable bodies. And mm -hmm. We have difficulty understanding them, and uh, we certainly are not sure about their constitutive response. Mm -hmm. We've talked about your extensive international experience visiting a number of different institutions in the world. I'm sort of curious, uh, you know, of, co of course there's a decision to be made that one is going to go somewhere else and ex experience another culture and find oneself in another professional environment. Uh, there's also tremendous opportunity that comes from, you know, learning of, of how science is done and how people interact. There are differences, there are cultural differences in the sciences yeah. in each of these various countries. Um, uh, I've spent a lot of time in Britain, uh -huh. a lot of time in France, a lot of time in Germany, a lot of time in Italy, and they each have different approaches. They, they each have uh, different education. People in mechanics, some people have had extensive uh, mathematical training, some have uh, very slight mathematical training.
Some have a very extensive knowledge of many fields of mechanics. Uh, there's just no one or two fields of mechanics. But they've been exposed to uh, many different influences, and it's really nice to uh, hear their influences, hear the questions that they raise, mm -hmm. and uh, it's also a wonderful place to find interesting problems to do research on. Mm -hmm. Back right after the uh, Second World War, mechanics was intimately related to mathematics and was often cultivated within mathematics departments. And in fact, you find that in the, the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. that the major mathematics department is called mathematics and mechanics. Mm -hmm. The applications that mathematics has been applied to has broadened immensely, I would say to the detriment of the growing class of applications in mechanics. So the number of mathematicians mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. have had any sort of exposure to mechanics has diminished uh, considerably. Again, 50 years ago, uh, you would find a considerable number of mathematicians who would know classical mechanics backwards and forwards, no elasticity, no fluid dynamics, yeah. and uh, even know something about the heat equation. Yeah. And uh, that percentage has diminished, unfortunately. Certainly, France has cultivated partial differential equations mm -hmm. and its uh, connection to applications very well. The mm -hmm. same with Italy for many years. Mm -hmm. Uh, in Britain, the deeper uses of modern differential equations uh, really got stimulated only in the late 1960s. They had a tradition of applied mathematics, but that was growing farther and farther from uh, the uh, nonlinear partial differential equations that had been developed on the continent. What about on the computational side? I mean, I mentioned that you had also contributed or worked in the area of computation. Is, has that also been a detriment to the development of some of the mathematical theories or, or the other way around? I think it's been a, a great benefit. Mm -hmm. One should really distinguish between uh, computation and numerical analysis. One would like to be able to justify the kind of errors that uh, are being made when you do computation. The fascinating part about mechanics is that the equations are so hard that we really don't have very, very sharp error estimates. Mm -hmm. So there's still a lot of the role of the art in computational uh, matters. It might not, not be the case that given the availability of computational tools, there develops a confidence and a faith in, in those tools as somehow representing reality uh, and less concern with whether there is a mathematical theory that might be able to predict things or explain or even invalidate some of those results? Well, I think one has to be a little bit careful. One of the uh, very fine uh, workers in uh, computational fluid dynamics, Phil Colella, says that there are lies, damn lies, and colored graphics. Mm -hmm. There's always that serious danger. There's mm -hmm. the danger of fact that when one's doing numerical work, you're always going to come out with a product and uh, pretty pictures. Yeah. And uh, the issue is, to what extent can you be assured that this is valid and yeah. can be useful for uh, serious predictions? Yeah. Do you know cases where theoretical development was able to sort of document that, in fact, a computational formulation, an algorithm, had serious deficiencies that would lead it uh, to give there, erroneous results? My former colleague, Ivo Babushka, has a, l a little collection of okay. these. Yeah. Uh, some of these... Uh, pertain to uh, parts of uh, atomic energy plants. He found that careful analysis shows that the original computations were, uh, were faulty and represented a significant danger. Mm. There are presumptions that certain techniques would minimize errors, mm -hmm. and in fact, uh, they didn't minimize the errors. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a great deal of theory that would be very useful, 
the theory uh, doesn't uh, immediately carry over, let's say, to uh, a lot of nonlinear problems. Right, in particular, for example, in uh, nonlinear elasticity, energies are not convex. Mm -hmm. And many uh, two-sided error estimates rely, rely on, on the convexity of energy. Uh, I was wondering if there's a, an example of a um, you know, piece of work that maybe appeared in the literature some years ago or, uh, or more recently that you feel uh, has not quite uh, received the recognition that it might deserve. Uh, or, or you know, had the impact that one would have thought it could have had. Uh, I would almost go back to one of my early loves, which is uh, uh, buckling problems. Mm -hmm. In the uh, 1960s, there are techniques developed for what I would call global behavior of buckled systems. Mm -hmm. That's post-post-buckling, how do uh, systems behave undergoing very large deformations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are techniques that effectively were able to describe fully the detailed behavior of solutions. These are topological techniques then? There were some of topological yeah. and combined with uh, analytic techniques. Uh -huh. And uh, these, uh, I don't think, ever fully permeated the, uh, the engineering uh, literature. Uh, so that would be one area which I, I uh, say that people are not aware of it, but I mean, the difficulties nowadays, there is uh, such a proliferation of uh, publications, yeah. um, a lot of it redundant, but uh -huh. it's very hard within this, uh, within this world to be aware of major things that yeah. uh, take place. Yeah. And this particular topic that you describe would have applications to even like we were talking about biological uh, systems with uh, um, macromolecules? Oh, oh, certainly. Well, the, a, a major application of some of these ideas have been to DNA. Yeah. And of course, there was a real question as how well, let's say, does the uh, deformation of rods in space uh, characterize real DNA? Mm -hmm. But there's uh, been some uh, very exciting work that uh, suggests that, yeah. well, it's been going on for 20, 25 yeah, years, yeah. Uh, and it suggests that there are... Uh, quite interesting insights that can be gathered from this. So these notions that there are parts of a chromosome that serve a mechanical purpose rather than a protein transcription purpose, is that are they related to this notion that somehow I think, they I think they're, affect I'm not, the folding? I'm not uh, capable about speaking this with any authority, okay. but certainly uh, the, uh, the chemical effects are produced by the mechanical and uh -huh. dynamical movements of these bodies. Uh -huh. So, so in, along these lines, though, you mentioned that there's a proliferation of, of publications and, and journal papers, many more journals these days than there used to be as well, and it's quite difficult to sometimes pick the, the gems out of the, the uh, preponderance of papers that are maybe doing incremental work. How do you mentor or advise students so that they know where to go? So in the viewpoint of mentoring, uh, basically what I uh, try and do for uh, doctoral students is, first of all, find an area that is rich enough that, it's, that uh, it doesn't have a million people working in it. Mm -hmm. And if one looks at, uh, I would say, large deformation behavior in solid mechanics, there are tons of problems where there are not definitive works. I also try and get a student to uh, work in an area in which I haven't worked in, although one close enough that I can advise in. Yeah. Then one can recommend people who have uh, who've done deep work, and uh, these are the references that the uh, student should uh, become familiar mm -hmm. with. One simply can't go and uh, look in 25, 30 journals or look up in a particular subject where you might find hundreds and hundreds of papers. 
So I would basically uh, recommend uh, looking up papers by individuals uh -huh. and also being self-reliant because this is an area in which the uh, student is going to have to make a new mark by him or herself. Mm -hmm. In the context of career, then, they would also have to somehow develop judgment, I suppose, when it comes to being equally focused in what they publish and where. That's true. And that's, that's an outgrowth sort of organically from the ex exposure they have of following a certain... That, well, that should be a, uh, an outgrowth of their education. Is, are, there, are there forces at, at play that uh, are sometimes con contrary to the advancement of science and progress of science? I think there's a lot of emphasis on counting papers. And I think this is a, a force at play that is counter to uh, necessarily deep studies. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is promoted by uh, the uh, desire to get grants, where there's more, uh, more counting. There'll of, be more the counting papers. there, yes. And so uh, in the general fields, I think it's essential that one uh, do reading and weighing uh -huh. of not the way, weighing the papers as far as they uh, have what you call, but yeah, they're right. uh, weighing the importance of the papers. Right. And choosing yes. and deciding. Yeah. And uh, so I think that uh, individuals have to make judgments, and uh, we can't let statistics make judgments of people. Well, I appreciate the time. I think we've, we've covered a lot of topics. Thank you. Uh, I hope to have another opportunity to chat at some other time, but we'll, we'll close for today. So thank you again, Professor Andman, and I uh, look forward to talking to you soon again. Thank you. This is Harry Dankovich, editor of Applied Mechanics Reviews. Thank you for listening to this Applied Mechanics Reviews audio interview with Professor Stuart Antman from University of Maryland College Park. Please remember to come back for more reflections on all aspects of applied mechanics research and professional engagement.